right before our eyes in these very days. And at this time of crisis, you can see so clearly this bankrupt system defended and promoted by greedy CEOs and spineless politicians, but a system that people are trying to rebel against and take down. And that's the picture of two really important fights that I want to focus on today, the fight to get millions of workers a $15 an hour federal minimum wage and the organizing campaign at Amazon. And that's what we're going to connect to in today's episode. This is Jonathan Tassini, and it's great to have you with us again for our show for February 17th, 2021. You can lend a hand to all our work by going over to workinglife.org, look for the podcast tab and click over there and you will see a link to Patreon where you can sign up as a one-time sponsor or a monthly supporter. Or you can do the same thing by using ActBlue. Go over to ActBlue and look for Working Life with Jonathan Tassini, and there you also can become a one-time sponsor or a monthly sponsor. Now, how irritating, maybe irritating is the wrong word. It's better to say infuriating to keep reading about these so-called Democrats and of course, I believe every single Republican who oppose raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. How deeply out of touch are these people who oppose giving people a semi-livable wage to try to survive on? Semi-livable, by the way, as I'll show in a sec, because $15 an hour is no great shakes if you think of what it takes to actually live on. And by the way, not only are these folks opposed but they are opposing the idea using uninformed bullshit arguments that just exposes how shallow and ideologically bankrupt a handful of Democrats are. So this is an important thing for millions of people as in the difference between having a few bucks to buy food versus going hungry. So I thought I'd arm everyone in the audience with the four, just four most important things to say to people to encourage them to make this fight a priority or to take on the uninformed with actual information. Number one, keep this thing in mind. If you made $15 an hour and you worked 52 weeks a year, 40 hours a week, meaning you had not a single day off to spend with your family or just chill, you would make $31,200. That, my friends, just puts a family of four a tiny bit over the official federal poverty line. And those poverty lines don't really tell us what it costs in real life to survive. Number two, if the federal minimum wage really kept pace with our productivity over the past four decades, the minimum wage should be actually $22 an hour. Yeah, the ruling class and owner class basically robbed millions of people of their hard work over many decades. That's a feature of capitalism, not a bug. Number three, hiking the minimum wage to $15 an hour would save the federal government money. Did you hear that? All you deficit mongers, all the fools who run around screaming about government spending, except when it comes to denying regular people's support but of course, lavishing money on the Pentagon and big corporations. A higher minimum wage will save the government money. How's that, you say? If people make more money, they won't need as much support from federal safety net programs, such as food stamps. And yes, the fact that people talk in a matter-of-fact way 
that people working full time have to rely on food stamps to survive in the richest nation in human history should never, never go unremarked with anything but that is fucked up, immoral, and calls for revolution in the streets. People earning more and likely working longer before retirement, I mean, if you earn more, more people will wait longer, actually, to start taking Social Security. Well, that will mean more money into the Social Security Trust Fund. And when you earn more, you and your employers pay more in taxes to the federal government. So bottom line, the various savings, thanks to hiking the minimum wage to $15 an hour, would end up saving, saving the government more than $65 billion a year by 2025. And that's according to a very reputable study from the Institute for Research on Labor and Employment at the University of California at Berkeley. You can look it up. And this is the last one, number four. Raising the minimum wage does not, does not, and this is exhausting because we've had to argue this for years. It does not cause big job losses or even much of any job loss at all. And actually, it might even help create jobs. Every credible study going back 30 years shows almost no negative effect to raising the minimum wage. Oh, yeah, sure. You'll hear about all those fast food joints who won't be able to afford a $15 an hour minimum wage. It's nonsense. Even if these places would have to raise prices a tiny bit to cover higher wages, it would be pennies on a hamburger or a slice of pizza. Nothing people would stop going to their favorite joint to eat because of the price. And this should be logical to any normal person. Those millions of people who start earning $15 an hour will all of a sudden have a little extra cash to spend which will likely mean a boost in jobs overall, or at least it would even out any potential small losses. So every single one of the Democrats who is standing in the way of decent wages, and today I'm thinking of fifth columnist Joe Manchin. That's the title I gave him in a piece that I wrote a while back for my new newsletter, which you can subscribe to, by the way, at Substack. Chris Coons from Delaware, who is a credit card industry mouthpiece, and Kristen Cinema from Arizona, they all deserve a vigorous primary challenge to take them out when they come up for re-election. They are so out of touch with regular people, it's amazing. And they're only in touch with their corporate donors' ideas and sentiments. Just to take Cinema for one second, because I've already skewered Mansion enough times to last, okay, maybe a week, when Donald Trump won Arizona in 2016, remember this, with just 48% of the vote to 44% for Hillary Clinton, 58% of the people in that same election, that's 10 points higher than Trump's total, voted to increase the state minimum wage to $12 an hour by 2020. In other words, by last year. So higher minimum wages is wildly popular far more popular than any individual politician. Duh. So take all that info that I just gave you and get out there and make the case. Now, last week I did a segment on the really important union organizing drive underway at Amazon's huge warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. And you can see my chat on that topic with Dave Mertz of the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union in the archive. 
as you can see all our past episodes in our archive. Please do subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can track all our episodes. This is so important a campaign, I wanted to come back to it with another segment because a win here, the first union at an Amazon warehouse would be a huge beginning to unionize this gargantuan corporate thug, not to mention a huge boost and message to everyone that organizing is possible anywhere in the country at any company. So workers are now voting by mail ballot, a vote that will go on until the end of March, and they are voting in the face of an ugly, vicious, anti-union campaign by Amazon. So to get a feel now for what's happening on the ground, let me welcome in Joshua Brewer, a lead organizer for the campaign for the RWDSU. So Joshua, tell us a little bit about how you got into this, maybe as an organizer, how you got into this campaign, but also a little bit about your background in terms of the labor movement. Sure, absolutely. So I've been with the organization about six years. Uh, started organizing uh, with very little little understanding of the labor movement in whole, but really wanted to help people uh, and had, I think, a lot of energy. And so they were, they were excited about that. So they said, all right, kid, just run down and do, uh, we've got this campaign down in in uh, the panhandle of Florida, it was a, it was a smaller nursing home, a group of workers down there. And, and um, I said, well, what do I do? He said, well, you hold a sign by the, by the front gate and, and you encourage workers to unionize, you know? And I said, all right, I can do that. And, and I, I called uh, Randy about a week later and I said, hey, Randy, there's a, a maintenance man. He's installing a water sprinkler here where I stand. And uh, he said, he looked at the maintenance man and said, brother, I'm sorry to do this to you, but I'm just following orders. And so they had actually ran sprinkler systems to try to run us off the gates. And uh, <laughs> so I called, I called Ray and I said, well, what do I do now? He's got a sprinkler on my gate. He said, go to Lowe's, get you a bucket, flip that bucket upside down and sit on it with your sign, put it on top of the sprinkler head. And so that's what I did. So I went and got a bucket and I put it upside down and I sat on it and that sprinkler head shot under my feet under that bucket <laughs> and I held the sign and uh, we won that campaign. Uh, we won it uh, three to four to one. Uh, it's a great union now, operates uh, great, and they got a good union contract. And so that's really how I, I mean, you know, just got my feet wet. Since then, uh, I do represent uh, a lot of poultry plants, some dairy uh, production in Birmingham, some healthcare, um, but do a good amount of organizing. And so um, next was really a big campaign with Presenius Medical Care uh, in the South primarily female, primarily people of color. They also won two elections there. And that was a few years back and we just got them to a contract. And so, um, you know, have, have, have had a few runs and, and dealt with a few multinationals. And so this isn't our first time going against a company with a ton of money that is fiercely anti-union. And so, you know, we had some experience before jumping in here. Well, that bucket over the sprinkler head is a sign of labor ingenuity and quick thinking. And I think I'm going to remember that and hearken back to that every time I have a segment about labor organizing and the challenges, because there's always an easy or perhaps obvious or a very ingenious way of countering yes. the company. I love that. Tell me a little bit about where you're from. And you're relatively young compared to me, for example. Sure. Did you do union organizing from kind of the outset or did you do any kind of organizing before that? And where, where were you raised? Sure, sure. So I was actually ra I'm born in South Georgia, uh, raised in Oakland County, Michigan. And so uh, my mother remarried when I was very young. And so we moved uh, to just outside of Detroit. And that's really where I spent my formative years. I was in uh, Oakland County for until I was 19 or 20 years old. 
uh, moved back down south, uh, just different odds and jobs, tried to find my way, partied a little long uh, from college. And then really about 24, 25, just started trying to find my way, wanted to help, had, had a lot of people that helped me along the way. And so um, started in youth ministry, actually, in, in uh, Alabama here, dealing with youth. Uh, and so interestingly enough, I also say this, they say, well, how did you, you know, how did you all, you know, organize 6,000 people into, into some agreement? And I said, well, I used to have to organize about 60 10-year-olds uh, at a, at a week-long uh, camp retreat. And so if I can chase all of them down and we can keep them in, in a, in a group, then it's, you know, it's, it's really the same thing. And so on a much bigger scale, but um, you know, dealt, dealt with youth, did some mission work overseas um, in Honduras, a couple trips there. Uh, just tried to find my way. Uh, met with a man named Johnny Whitaker, actually went to church with him. Uh, he was our local president at the time in the Mid-South Council. And he said, look, man, uh, you, you got to give it a shot. You know, you, this, I really think you'd like this. You've got an interest in business and you want to help people and we need people like you. So, uh, you know, that's really how I got involved. It was just another. And, and the way I see it now is, is it's just an extension of ministry. I think it's it's a very similar field. People need help. Uh, they need advice. And, and we've got some good answers for them. And so, you know, I, I see it, it really paralleled pretty, pretty much the same. That's wonderful. So, okay, the ballots are out in the mail and workers are now having a chance to cast their ballot for or against the union. What's the vibe right now on the ground, if you can give us a sense of that? Sure. It's a it's a fight. It's a fight. There's no doubt about it. Um, It's 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 exciting, Uh, depending on the moment of the day. Um, we feel like we're absolutely going to win. We're going to, we're going to run, run right through it. And then sometimes, you know, it's an emotional roller coaster. Amazon has done, uh, they've done a number, you know, uh, for those that are familiar with labor process and labor law, they really had a two month head start as we were beginning to gather cards. Um, and before we had access to employee information and we we're really able to reach the majority of the employees outside of just trying to get them on the gates and, and, and through community organizing, they were, they were already doing a full-fledged anti-union campaign with captive meetings and, and inoculating people into these really misinformation and twisted kind of facts that they, well, twisted lies that they call facts. And, um, and so, you know, it's, it's taken a lot. Once we were able to have access to the workers' uh, information, like phone numbers, email addresses, um, that we were able to start putting that good information out there to everyone. And so we're really seeing the momentum shift because I think a lot of workers are saying, okay, I spent two months hearing from Amazon and now I'm really hearing from the union and I'm starting to look at this thing. And I think they're seeing where a lot of the stuff Amazon told them is not adding up. And I think there's, there's a lot of, 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 of now skepticism forming around a lot of the things Amazon was saying that is now being proven to be really untrue and not just untrue from the union's perspective, but from the media and the general public and all this support, the overwhelming amount of support that they're seeing and feeling in the last few weeks as this has really, you know, captured, captured the nation's attention, at least for labor and the economy. And so um, they feel that the workers feel that, and they, they feel that momentum. The organizers feel the momentum on the gates um, the folks on the phones, you know, we, we at this point, we've, uh, our staff has expanded tremendously from, from labor all over the country, helping out and, and our own staff. And so, um, you know, they're feeling it on the phones. And so we feel really good right now. We, we feel excited, um, but we definitely are in a fight, you know, um, it's, it's Alabama and this, this was never going to be easy. 
So uh, you mentioned a couple of things just now that I want us to spend a little more time on, and that is the nature of how hard it is to organize. And you sort of said Amazon had two months to prepare and go after people and quote unquote inoculate them, which is beat the crap out of them and completely propagandize them. And organizers have to get people at the gates and or track them down at home. And so let's make an analogy, which I made actually last week when I talked to your colleague, Dave Mertz. Let's say there were two people running for president of the United States. And one person, let's call it Mr. Amazon, got to campaign and talk to every single voter face to face inside the United States. And then on the other hand, the opponent, Ms. RWDSU, had to do all his or her campaigning, in this case, Ms. RWDSU, her campaigning, say from the from Mexico or from outside the country and had to try to reach all these voters without actually knowing where they lived or being able to reach them on a day-to-day basis. My point is that the analogy here is really, really important to understand that it's so hard and there's so many obstacles for the union, first of all, just to interact and get the information to people. No, that's a hundred percent right, and I think I think it's 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 I'm with you with you hundred percent. I think it's actually when we look at addressing labor law in this country, and how do we give really workers their freedom back to organize? Because if you look at the national polls, if you look at really any sort of studies, workers want unions; they just can't get them, and and so you know we have to address that. And I think when you look at Europe and you look at some of these these countries with with larger um, uh, unionization rates, you're seeing access. You're seeing laws that provide access to the union to be able to have a fair election. And I think that you're 100% accurate. And so, you know, the way the federal labor law system works is we had to provide um, legally 30% of the 6,000 workers signing authorization cards in order to begin the process, right? Even at that point, that just began the process. Now Amazon has the ability through a broken labor law system to jam this thing up for months and months on end in that very beginning process, which they attempted to do. And we had to make some legal strategy decisions in order to avoid those costly delays because anytime you have a movement, there's excitement and there's a, there's a movement in a moment in time that you have to capture. And, and so Amazon knows that and Amazon and any other major company their first goal is to delay, 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 and stop the vote from happening. And so, look, Amazon tried that. We were able to get past that. Even through that process, we did not have access to employee information. And so when and you the really delays think- always use the, the delays always are to the advantage of the corporation, obviously, because there are some people who are really committed, the organizing committee, the people that really want the union, but a lot of people are sitting back and saying, you know, yeah, I'll support the union. But then when delays come and then delays on top of delays, they start getting concerned that ultimately what they need and what they want won't come to pass. And that's where the real challenge is for union to keep folks together in the face of this relentless uh, effort on the part of the company to bludgeon people, delay, and frustrate people. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and it's even more frustrating because during the, the summer months and fall months, as we're building committees and community organizing and talking to people, 
we're showing them labor law. And so they have this expectation of what's going to happen. And then when they get into the fight and they see corporations get to break those laws and really just ignore them with very little punishment. And, you know, in this, this country, we do not do civil punishments. We do not put any sort of labor violators in jail or, or things of that nature. I know the, the president has talked about looking at some of those things in this administration. I think they're important. I think there should be some repercussions to violating federal law. Um, you know, I, I, I know a, a young lady right now in my mind that I had a conversation with this 17 years ago, she was falsely accused for a bad check for $91. She was given a felony at that time in a public defender. And that felony is still on her record. She didn't write the check. She has an alibi. She can show where she didn't do it. It was at a pet food store and she doesn't own a pet. And so but, but for 15 years, that has prevented her in many ways from having the careers that she wanted. It has been a stumbling block for her. And when you look at a, a multinational company where you look at a campaign that people are saying has economic implications for the entire country, and then you allow those entities to just break laws and, and do it so openly and brashly with zero repercussions. I think that alone is, is just a, a social construct and a, and, a, and a national problem, right? And, so, and when they break labor laws on top of that, they're break, breaking safety and health laws. So in this country, if you kill somebody out in the street, uh, mm -hmm. even if you run them down with a car, you will go to jail for a very long time. Right. If a corporation and a CEO kills a worker mm -hmm. at work, they will essentially get off with a slap in the wrist. There might right. be a financial fine, and fine. that's just basically deductible by the company. It's a cost of doing business. But none of these CEOs ever go to jail, no matter how many workers are killed, how many workers get sick, and how much damage they do to workers' physical lives. And that kind of leads me to a question. Let's get down into the weeds sure. here about what's happening at this warehouse. What's been the safety and health record here? Because I know from looking around at Amazon warehouses, not just in the United States, but around the world, Amazon has a really piss poor record when it comes to safety and health. They do. They do. Actually, generally three times the national average for, for, for significant injuries. And so, you know, when I would say local facility, we deal with, you know, a plethora of people that are on leave, on medical leave that are either coronavirus or, uh, or workplace injuries, repetitive motion. Um, I would say that as a local warehouse, I wouldn't be able to say that it's any worse or any better than the other Amazon fulfillment centers because those numbers, Amazon is very much lock and key with a lot of this information. Um, I would say though, that when you have a worker working at the pace that they're doing um, on 10 hour days, which is their primary concern is that we have a 10 hour work shift and we're getting two 30 minute breaks. Well, some people say, oh, well, so do I. Okay, well, but let's just talk about this. Most of us don't stand on a line for four and a half hours a day and pack and rip and pull and move constantly very, very rapidly on our feet, right? So you then get done with your four and a half hour run, you get this 30 minute break. Well, keep in mind, Amazon fulfillment centers, including this one, are up to 16 football fields in size. And so the, the scope for people is hard to imagine. I mean, it's, a, it's hard to imagine a warehouse that houses 6,000 workers, not including contractors. There's probably seven, 8,000 workers in the building. And so you can fathom this, this, this size. And so the workers say, look, we, we walk four football fields to our break station. We get there, we sit down, we go to the vending machine, get a water, go to the bathroom, we sit down and we have seven or eight minutes to eat something and we've got to start the journey back 
across that monster monster facility to our workstation. And yeah, so and they don't even have regular normal pee breaks. Uh, I mean, let's face yeah. it, you can't time the the moment when you're going to need to use the bathroom. And sure. if you have to hold it in until your break, first of all, that's medically dangerous for a number of people. And then to sure. your point, and I've seen this in other warehouses. I remember a story of a warehouse in the UK where literally to your point where someone would be stationed, it would take them that long just to get to the bathroom, quickly use the bathroom and then get back to where they were because they were on the other side of the warehouse. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and you know, what to me, what is mind boggling is that Amazon is aware of this. They could fix this. They, they could do very small things just on this issue alone, but they refuse. And that has been their history. They're not going to listen to, uh, they don't want to listen to labor. They don't want to listen to public perception. They don't want to listen to OSHA. They don't want to listen to the Senate, the Congress. They, they feel truly, and they act as if they are larger than us. And, and I think for people um, watching and, and paying attention to this campaign, that should be one of the most important parts of this campaign is that there's a large portion of this country that is, that is not able to speak out against Amazon. You look at their sheer size and the fact that they're now infiltrating digital media, movies, production, retail, food, uh, business. It's, it's a, it's, it's, it begins to get very worrisome right? There's a reason why we have laws in this country to protect against these kind of things. And, and we've, we've seen that on this campaign, you know. And let's um, underscore I, the point that Amazon could do all this because it is owned by the richest person on the planet. Elon Musk might, might have passed Jeff Bezos briefly, but let's face it, Jeff Bezos is richer than most human beings who have ever walked on this earth. By the way, he's not rich because of me, because I refuse to patronize Amazon uh, right. until they're a union company. And certainly right. for other reasons, Amazon destroys local small businesses, as you well know. But the point is, they could do small things and they can afford to do that. They have a huge amount of money. They have a huge amount of cash. They're making money hand over fist, including during, as you know, during the pandemic, when people are stuck at home, their profits and their revenues have gone sky high. So this is just about the amorality of this mm -hmm. company. And I assume that most of your workers know at least a part of that. And that, that's what I want to kind of move to is sort of did workers come to this organizing effort knowing sort of what Amazon's impact was generally on workers? Was it a personal decision on their part because of their own circumstances? Or did they see also as well, some saw it as a bigger movement? I think it's, I think it's, that it's both. So I'll, I'll start with, first of all, I think, I think workers, workers came to us knowing Amazon's history, but I think also workers came to us just disappointed. I think they were they were very excited when they heard that Amazon was coming to Bessemer. I think the the economic struggles of Bessemer has been widely reported, um, and so to have a to have an employer come in and offer fifteen dollars, which as we know in the South is a more competitive wage uh, certainly than than we're used to seeing with some of the some of these smaller factories and plants. Um, so they they felt excited about it. I think what workers found when they got there was was the opposite. I think they found uh, mass chaos. There was quite a few water issues when they first opened the facility. There was issues with the internet, which everything runs off of an application, the Amazon A to Z app. And so there was issues with clocking in and out and workers weren't being paid correctly. And, and ultimately it was, it, was, it was this underlying concern that 
we were being treated less than human, that we don't have a supervisor or a manager that we really know. We have pictures of them on our phone, but we've never met them. And that ultimately we feel like we're, we're losing a sense of our humanity. We report to this robot, to these robots that give us these directions. And, 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 and when we have issues or just regular questions, you know, especially with COVID, I mean, we were in an administration that was giving no one any answers. There was a lot of confusion. And these workers were opening and, and starting this work at the exact same time. And they felt like they would reach out to Amazon. They would ask them questions, you know, basic things. What, what do I do if my spouse is COVID positive? Am I supposed to come in? I have no symptoms. Um, am I going to lose my job if I don't? And, and so often these, these, these questions just went unanswered. And so, you know, I think you spoke to it. Amazon has the ability to fix some of these issues if they truly wanted to, um, but they don't. And, and they are choosing to open these facilities in places where they know workers will need the wage, where they know workers will put up with a lot of the nonsense. And um, it's intentional. And I think, you know, I think workers were aware um, of some of the past, but we're certainly not aware of the bigger picture here um, as far as labor goes. Right. So one of the things you mentioned about inside the warehouse, give us a sense. I gather that what you said when you mentioned that workers don't see their managers, don't know who they are, they their pictures on a phone, that folks can be working in this massive six foot football field size warehouse, as you mentioned, and mm-hmm. they might not see anybody who is their partner from a sort of manager standpoint. They're working alone, pulling this stuff and answering just to a robot. Well, there's yeah, that's all right. So there's there's so much going on, and there's an application, and then they have the robotics, and so. So often they're told to message HR or set up an appointment if you need to speak to anyone with human resources or with your manager. And again, these are the complaints where they said they would just go and answer. They would send the email. They would try to schedule the appointments. Nobody would come. Next thing you know, you, you know your disciplinary paperwork is also delivered on the app many times. And so uh, if you there's a thing called TOT time, time off task, and that's the other large issue at Amazon that they're refusing to acknowledge. And that is essentially everything in, at Amazon, as we know, is, is, is incredibly automated. From the time you click buy to the time that product shows up at your house, you know, it's, it's, it's Henry Ford, you know, mass 80 years forward, right? And so there's, there's a very, very, very distinct way that this assembly has to happen and that these things have to go. And, and it's all very tight in time. And, and so, very impersonal and very impersonal and course, um, sterile and probably quite alienating. I can't think of a more alienating environment as, you, as you've described it. And that must have contributed to folks talking to each other and saying, there's got to be a better way. We have to be treated with some dignity and respect. We have, so, have to have some rights, which Amazon, it's one reason Amazon has assiduously, aggressively fought any attempt to unionize. And let's talk a little bit, give us a couple examples about what Amazon has been doing to destroy the union movement. Sure, sure. So, you know, they started with, with captive meetings very quickly. And, and to, give, to give everyone an explanation of captive meetings, it's essentially a meeting where they have their employees come in, they pull you off the line, pull you off of your job, and they bring you into these meetings that they call classes. And they're led by anti-union consultant lawyers um, that are paid very well to essentially manipulate 
information and misinform workers and try to prevent workers from unionizing. They're generally very versed on labor law. They know exactly the line that they can go up to uh, and generally not cross. Now, that's not to say they won't cross it. They absolutely will cross it. Back to our earlier conversation. If they feel like they're losing, they'll cross it just because there's no real punishment to stop what's going on and they'll take their lashings later. Um, and let's be clear about, let's be clear what the line is so my audience knows, and that is they can't threaten to fire you if you join the union. There are a few things that the where the line right. is joined. And your point, I want to underscore, the cost of that, the penalty is tiny, so they will often do that. But let's be very clear about what that line is. Sure. So it, it, number one, you're looking at interrogation and coercion, right? And so generally speaking, the board says, look, this needs to be a, a free and fair election. You're that's welcome. The national to labor late. That's the National that's, Labor yeah, Relations the national Board. Labor that's, Relations Board. They say, yeah. you know, look, this is this is supposed to be a free and fair decision for the workers. And so the union, you're welcome to explain why you believe they should vote yes, why you believe they should unionize. To the same point, the company, you're allowed to do the same. Why you believe they shouldn't, if that's your opinion. Um, but what we cannot do is obviously intimidate workers. We cannot coerce them or harass them and essentially offer them maybe benefits in the future and, 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 you know, really just to keep things fair as if any other election, any other real election in the United States that we have. And so, um, you know, I can give an example, if you'd like, of, of, of a way, of, a really common sense way that union busters will lie without actually legally lying. Um, yeah, give us a, give it to us in a small nugget. Sure, sure. So, Best way I can, uh, essentially, right? So once the union wins, once the workers vote to win and form their own union, they're gonna bargain a contract, right? And after that process, the, the, the mass of the Amazon facility, all 6,000 workers will vote on whether or not they want that contract. And that will be their decision and it will be voted on and won by a majority. And so what Amazon union busters will say is they will say things like, you know, the union, they can go into negotiations and they can sacrifice your wages and, and, and create language that then gives that money over to the union and so that they can spend it however they want, right? Now, is that statement false? Technically, could in negotiations, could we say we're going to take money from employees and give it to the union? Um, theoretically, legally, yes, we could. But would 6,000 employees ever vote for a pay cut to then in turn give their money to the union? No. Well, there's there certainly, there certainly what Amazon does as we kind of wrap up our segment here. Amazon does what all companies do. They, I want to underscore this. This union busting process is a huge multi-billion dollar business. This isn't just some fly-by-night operation. These are highly paid consultants. They're at almost every major law firm in the United States, and they get hired by companies to do exactly what Joshua is saying, which is to skirt the line of what's legal, threaten folks, put the fear that if they vote for the union, it'll be a bad outcome. And then if by chance they cross the line, the penalty is so small, it's really a cost of doing business, especially for a huge company like Amazon. They're happy to break the law if it means that they might pay $10,000, $100,000, but at the end of the day, they stop the union. I want to wrap up with this question. Sure. So how are, how are people feeling? And I want to be clear, I, I don't, it's not like Las Vegas where we're going to bet on how the outcome is, but give us sure. a sense 
of what you think the, the mood is now in terms of the vote count, how people are feeling, are people energetic, is the feedback coming back from workers, and you get a sense that people are really voting for the union? Sure. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, you know, we're, we're talking to workers every day. We're having hundreds of conversations a day. And so we have a feeling, we have a really good feeling on the campaign and the pulse of the, of the folks on the campaign. And, and look, our committee, our, our people are saying they absolutely believe we're going to win. Um, we're looking at, at our numbers and looking at the workers we've talked to. We are, we are growing more confident by the day. But what I will tell you is, um, you know, we're in a fight as this whole, this whole conversation has gone. To put a fast number on that one union buster, this just came out, Amazon is paying $3,200 a day for one person. Uh, you can imagine how many of those folks it takes to union bust a 6,000 worker plant. And so that's public information. And so, you know, we have a fight against us. They're going to spend millions of dollars to misinform and, and, and harass and terrify their own employees. Um, but we believe the spirit of Bessemer is going to come through and, and we believe we're going to win. And, and we're excited and uh, looking forward to the next six weeks. And the reason they're going to spend millions of dollars, let's be clear, when you guys win, that's going to set a shockwave, not just through every single Amazon warehouse, but through the entire labor movement that has been trying to organize these big retailers like Walmart, the, the big anti-union ones. And I, I, I think that this is why this is such an important campaign. And I really, you know, on the behalf of all the labor movement, want to thank you and the work you're doing and all those workers who are standing up in the face of this assault by one of the most amoral companies, and I've been around a while, one of the most amoral companies that I've seen and run by one of the most amoral people, the CEO, Jeff Bezos. It's one of the reasons I don't patronize Amazon. I will if they start to let the folks have a fair shot at unionizing. Joshua, thanks very much for being on the show. We'll have you back to update us as we get closer to the vote. Sounds great, brother. I appreciate you having me and appreciate the work you're doing getting the messages out. Thank you, brother. That'll do it for this week's broadcast. Thanks to my guest, Joshua Brewer. Our editor is David Hebden. Help us continue to bring the stories of the courageous workers at Amazon and other organizing efforts by becoming a sponsor for a few bucks to pay for our modest overhead. Keep this show on the air. So go over to workinglife.org, look for the podcast tab and click over there. and You will see a link to Patreon where you can sign up a one-time sponsor or a monthly spot supporter or you can go over to act blue and look for working life with jonathan tassini and there you can also become a one-time sponsor or a monthly sponsor in any case do subscribe to the youtube channel please just do that go over to youtube and subscribe to the channel pass that link around to your friends so we can start to build that audience hey thanks for being with us look forward to having you back next week